following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. When I say murder, sometimes it's used in some sort of derogatory sense, but most of you would say to yourself when it comes to actual murder, I've not really done that. Murder is actually, though, more common than you might think. Over 25,000 murders occur in the United States every single year, and that's over 70 murders a day. And there are mass murderers, there are unknown, unsolved murders, there are gangland murders. Murder is now so commonplace that unless you're famous or an actor or an actress, then it doesn't even make the evening news. But as a Christian, have you considered all the additional murders that are occurring? Have you considered an added suicide, which is self-murder, or abortions, pre-birth murder? When you consider that, the number of murders around us is absolutely staggering. In fact, as bad as that is, it's even worse than you think. Because the Bible teaches that anger or hatred is murder of the heart. Murder of the heart. And it makes everybody in this room a murderer at some level, at some point in your life. Because all of us have battled with anger. Anger comes in a lot of forms. And some of you are more angry than others. In fact, take the husband and wife. The husband who said to his wife, when I get mad at you, you never fight back. How is it that you control your anger? And his bride said, well, I cleaned the toilet. His husband said, well, how does that help? She said, I use your toothbrush. There you go. (laughs) Some of us have a seething, you know, anger, bitterness that's smoldering within us, a hate in our heart. And what Christ is going to do today in the Sermon on the Mount is he's going to take his word as a scalpel and he's going to dive right in and do open heart surgery and actually give you the tools necessary in which to see that yanked out. He will do that for you today because all believers in this room don't always see anger the way God sees it. In fact, many of you don't see it as such a bad sin or that it is actually dangerous to your soul. We have low views of anger. As a result, many faithful saints try to make peace with it. They cover it over. They hide it within. They, they don't slay it. They don't kill it. They don't go after it. Uh, they don't repent of it. They, they don't put it aside. It's not on their radar until anger somehow works itself out in you in some very overt, dangerous, and regretful way. And then all of a sudden it becomes an issue that we all have to deal with. This is what was happening exactly in first century Judaism. What was happening was that the rabbis over centuries had basically rewritten God's law in such a way that now the only sin that revolved around anger and hate was murder. It was only the ultimate expression of anger, which was murder. That was sin, but all the internal issues were not sin. So the Pharisees could walk around self-righteously saying, I haven't killed anybody, and therefore they're righteous, when Jesus says, no, you need to deal with the internal anger, the anger you feel in your heart that sometimes leaks its way out of you, but you've got to deal with that which is within you. Interesting enough, in order to really, really make peace with your heart of anger, you have to go down a different path than excusing it. You really do. The Pharisees reworked God's law, so again, it was only murder. And Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, says no. In Matthew 5, 21 to 26, he goes, he's going to cut through that cosmetic belief of only murder is the issue, and he's going to expose hostility, hate, and anger that many believers 
battle with. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. That's the paragraph that we're going to be looking at today as we work our way verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. And as you read this aloud with me, Christ is going to destroy their external religion, and he's going to uplift what really matters to him, which is your heart before him. And if there's anger found there, he wants you to deal with it. In fact, he gives two illustrations in this passage. One of them is directed at a believer or a fellow Jew. The other one's directed at a non-believer or someone like a Gentile outside the context of God's family in this particular context. And he's basically saying, I want you to deal with anger so you don't hurt and harm the family inside the church. I want you to deal with anger also so you don't harm your witness in the world. Very important. So he gives those two illustrations because it's that important. So if you would, from your outline, let's read this passage together, starting in verse 21. Read it out loud with me with a little bit of vigor. Here we go. Ready? You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now understand As Jesus teaches this, and if you're new to Christianity, you might think, well, wow, Jesus is addressing anger. How novel here. This is not novel. The entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is filled with verses that address the issue of unrighteous anger. It really does. So I want you to see them. They're listed there for you in your outline. Look at them. Proverbs 14, 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up what? Anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Do not associate, don't hang out with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Skip down to Proverbs 29.11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man, what? Holds it back. Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgressions. And James 1, 19. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, what does he teach us just from these cross-references, just from these passages? An angry person, summarize these verses, is a fool. They abound in sin, transgression. So it's beyond anger. They get ensnared by anger. It stirs up strife in other people. It is unwise. It's guilty of breaking the law of God, and it doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. All of that in those cross-references. MacArthur says, anger, quote, is a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness, end quote. Anger is a very powerful emotion. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah, it's scary. When anger is expressed in speech, it's prone to wound, and sometimes those wounds never go away. When anger is expressed in action, it's prone to damage and destroy. The Greek word anger here is more than just a passing frustration or uh, an irritation or displeasure. This anger, the Greek word orge, means upsurging or impulsive, and it denotes a strong and persistent feeling of indignation. It's burning. It's burning. And God's Word has a lot to say about anger. But is all anger sin? Yes or no? No, there is a righteous anger. 
and a sinful anger. Yes, there is. Righteous anger is motivated by a desire to defend God, His honor, His word, but it is never about defending yourself. And we know that there can be anger without sin because Christ, who is without sin and always has been and always will be, was angry at points. In Matthew 21, he was angry at the money changers in the temple. In Matthew 23, he was angry at the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Very few, though, I believe Christians have expressed anger in a righteous way. Now, we are angry at injustice. We are angry when others suffer. That, that does come about, but you have to be very, very careful. Do you not? When you're angry, to call it righteous because we can deceive ourselves. Can I hear an amen to that? You want to be very careful. Very. Jay Adams says, acceptable anger centers around the things that offend God rather than offending you, end quote. There is a godly anger against sin, and if we love the Lord, we will hate sin, especially as it harms other people. But anger is always sin when it's aroused by the wrong things, like in jealousy or impatience or some self-focused manner or matter that we're dealing with. When you're angry because somebody overlooked you, or they're not mentioned you, or, or you're ignored, that's sinful anger. Uh, when anger burns because your job is hard, or your finances are stretched, or your relationships are strained. That's sinful anger. When you're on the freeway, and you're shoot-cussing those other drivers, and I know none of you can identify with this, that's sinful anger. They didn't do it your way. Anytime anger is expressed by blowing up or clamming up, that's illegitimate anger. Now, when I say clamming up, I'm not talking about you know, guarding and muzzling your mouth so you don't express it. I'm talking about you're clamming up so you punish someone. And in fact, sinful anger is rooted in pride. Rooted in pride. Driven by the belief that you deserve better. It's really what it is. Sinful anger is aroused by the unchangeable things of life. What's unchangeable? Well, you can't change your looks. You can't change your social economic standing, typically. Uh, when there are sins committed against you, you can't change that. God, God doesn't change people around you the way you want Him to. God's not changing your circumstances, and you don't like those circumstances, so you get angry. Events are not working out the way you want, so your ambitions, your goals are thwarted. Okay, ultimately, though, write this down. Sinful anger is expressed against a sovereign God. All sinful anger is an expression against a sovereign God because we're not happy with the sovereign will and His direction that He's taking us. That's why we get angry. So you've got to walk that through and watch your motives because it ultimately is directed at God Himself. So what do we do? Seek to ask God's forgiveness through confession. Seek to gain repentance in a way that you would then turn from your anger and ask for help from the body of Christ is, is really the way that you deal with anger. The way you do it. As Christ continues now to preach this sermon, He states, you have heard it said. You know, the Pharisees taught murder was wrong. It is wrong. It's with the sixth of the Ten Commandments. It's bad. Okay, you should avoid it. But don't walk around going, I'm righteous because I don't murder. Jesus says, I say to you. And He begins to address the matters of the heart. He goes right into the internal scriptural truth, the motive and the intention of God's word here. And the Pharisees wanted to basically say only murder and Christ is going to say, look, you need to deal with the internal anger, the internal hate, the internal bitterness. Those are sins. And all of us, and all of this, calls every single one of us in this room to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. Christ always brings this up when He begins to highlight a sin or a direction or an internal heart issue to cause you, this is what He wants, for you to cling to Christ. One in salvation, secondly in sanctification. One in I need to be born again and made new internally so I can deal with this stuff. And two, even as a Christian, so I can begin to see some progress of these things being dealt with on this side of heaven. That's what he's calling us to. You say, well, how's he going to do that? Point number one in your outline. He wants you to see the seriousness of the sin of anger. The seriousness of the sin 
of anger. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, this is what we find in the Word of God, you shall not commit adultery. (laughs) That's not what it says. That's next week. You shall not commit what? Murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, okay, let me help you understand God's word, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, raka, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to even go into the fiery hell. Wow. Wow. Jesus begins with the major prohibition, the sixth of the Ten Commandments, and says, you shall not commit murder. Now, if you do, you're going to go to court, and you're going to be found guilty if you're sentenced. Verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So, understand, if you're guilty, it could even lead to your death. So, the Lord's laying that out. He's not contradicting that. But what he is saying, he has much more in mind here than condemning the evil act of premeditated murder. Christ is concerned about hate, bitterness, resentment, and a murderous heart. That's what he's concerned about. So, Christ knows the expressions of hate and and that anger and even murder is first found in your heart. Anger is an internal battle. And the Bible reminds this. Uh, truth about the internalness, the heartness of your battles with sin. He says in Mark chapter 7 verse 20, and he was saying, listen to this and read it, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. What's inside of you? For within, out of the what? Heart of men proceed all these sins that we battle with, like anger. That's where it finds its root. And Christ is telling you, you got to deal with the hate in your heart. Don't allow the seed of anger to take root in the soil of your heart. Don't allow it. Don't allow hate to get a foot in the door in your inner man and give the, the devil an opportunity to mess with you in a way that he couldn't and otherwise. Anger makes you a destroyer, not a builder. Anger enslaves you, doesn't free you. It enslaves you. To hate someone is to commit murder in your heart. And that's exactly what Jesus means in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. What's he say? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's pretty plain. And then he says this. And you know that no murderer has what? Eternal life abiding in him. Boy, that's scary. This does not mean that you should, and I'm going to be redundant here and a little bit obvious, you should not go ahead and actually murder someone you hate, since logically you're saying, well, I've already hated them and murdered them inwardly in my heart, so why not just kill them? All right? The reason I'm saying that is that sinful feelings do not excuse and are not an excuse for sinful deeds. So clearly, sinful anger robs you of fellowship with God, robs you of fellowship with one another, but sinful anger doesn't necessarily put you in jail for murder, correct? There are great, more serious consequences to murder. However, more than one person has become a murderer because he failed to control his sinful anger. So therefore, we got to understand this. Again, what does the Bible say and warn you about the sin of anger? Again, this is everywhere in the Scripture. I've only given you some of the more clear and pointed ones. Psalm 37, verse 8, Cease from anger. And forsake wrath. Do not fret. Even fretting, it leads to only what? Evil doing. Proverbs 14.29 He who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Ephesians 4.26 Be angry, righteous anger. Yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not, here it is the warning, give the devil an opportunity with your anger. In the context. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8, but now, now, right now, you also put them all aside. What? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. And here in chapter 5 verse 22 of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, notice Jesus, he stair steps his statements 
about internal anger in descending and intensifying manners. The consequences, as he proceeds to give three illustrations in a row, get worse and worse and worse. Did you notice that in the text? Look carefully at verse 22. The first step, he says, But I say to you, first, that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, the local court. And then he says, whoever says to his brother, second, you good for nothing, Raka, shall be guilty before the supreme court, not just the local court. And whoever says, third, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. Getting worse and worse and worse. You saw it there, right? First, he basically says, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you, you might be liable to the local court. There could be consequences. There might be some fines. There might be public shame, loss of income. Secondly, Jesus says that insulting your brother or sister by calling them raka, which means empty head or good for nothing, makes you liable to the Supreme Court. And he's talking about the Sanhedrin there, that word describing the 70 religious leaders who oversee religious life in Israel. Now facing them, not only just fines, not only great shame, but it could lead to imprisonment. It could even lead, what was serious, to your own death facing the Sanhedrin. But thirdly, and finally, Jesus says, in anger, calling your brother or sister a fool, that fool, that word there, is the Greek word moros, where we get the English word moron. Okay? Moron. And that makes you liable to God's judgment, and get this, and to hell itself. Jesus is trying to tell you something. Listen to what Jesus says. Anger is serious. Are you getting it? It's serious. The use of moros is far more severe than calling somebody an idiot or a moron. It's used five times in the Gospel of Matthew. It always describes an unregenerate person. So what you're doing here is a Jew is calling someone a Gentile or a Christian is calling someone who's unsaved, unregenerate, and they're consigning them to hell. Hell. You know what hell is. It's a place. It's real. It's going to be open for business. It's that awake, burning, suffering, punishing, tormenting, forever place for all Christ rejectors. In hell... You're not hanging out with your bros having beers. In hell, you're not even surrounded by horrible, awful people who are being punished. You are in hell alone in a resurrected body, alive in darkness, in a burning, gnashing torment forever. Anger is serious. Because Jesus links anger to hell. Jesus talks a lot about hell, and he talks about hell more than any other person. In fact, the only other person who mentions hell in the New Testament is his half-brother James in chapter 3 of James. That's it. Every other reference is Christ. Hell is the New Testament word for eschological punishment. Hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Now that came from the Hebrew word Gehinnom. Now that's a reference to the Valley of Hinnom. Now that's a valley on the south side of Jerusalem describing an actual place where King Ahaz, an evil king, King Manasseh, an evil king, offered child sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. They literally burned babies alive. It was horrific. Good King Josiah, because of what happened there, declared that valley, the Hinnom Valley, next to Jerusalem, as unclean. And it became the place that became the garbage dump, the refuse place. You'd burn trash there, refuse, dispose of human corpses, of criminals and animal corpses. The fire that was burning there never went out. It was always, it smelled, it was horrible, there were maggots, it was gross, and it was the later, the Hinnom Valley became the symbol for final judgment. It became the symbol for its unquenchable fire, constant smoke, and burning. It was descriptive of Gehenna, 
of Hinnom, the valley of judgment became the description of eternal torment in hell. Hell. Only Christ himself has the authority to cast both body and spirit into hell. And here you are in hell because of what? The sin of anger. That's what Christ is saying. And as the crowd is listening, Christ's words seem extreme. And maybe they seem extreme to you. And that's only because we don't have a high enough view of his holiness and we don't have a low enough view of our sin and our sin of anger. That's the only reason why it's extreme. We minimize it. And Christ is trying to teach this crowd by the Sea of Galilee who are listening to this sermon, taking it all in. And he's trying to teach you too the seriousness of sin and the depths of your fallen nature, particularly as it relates to anger. He is highlighting this sin. Far more sinful than the external expressions and actions of sin, it is the internal realities that Christ is talking about. He's not talking about murder and those outward expressions or yelling and screaming. He's talking about anger in your, where? Heart. And he says it's devastating. Christ's holiness, his righteousness, his sinlessness is far more pure than we can even imagine. And our sinfulness, our fallen nature, our sinfulness and f- sinful nature and anger are far more impure than we can imagine. And the Jews were content. Oh, just don't murder. Walk around. Feel good about yourself because you didn't murder anybody. You're righteous. And he's saying, no. No, you have to examine your heart. You have to see what's there and deal with those internal heart corruptions. And don't miss this. Catch it. It's one of the ways in which we deal with anger is the way it's expressed here, and that is that you don't express it. It's explained here, don't express it. The illustrations that Jesus gives and is about to are speaking verbal, calling someone raka, calling someone a fool. There are verbal expressions of our anger, and one of the keys to dealing with anger is not to say it. Don't express it. Proverbs 29, 11, look at it. A fool always loses his temper, but the wise man, what? Holds it back. Now, don't hold it in and destroy yourself. You have an avenue, and you are to cast your care upon Jesus. You are to pray about how many things? All things. That includes anger. So learn how to deal honestly with your God. Which means, Lord, I'm battling with anger right now. I'm feeling angry right now. I don't even know how to deal with it. Help me. All right? Talk to him. Then find, if you can, a brother or sister, same sex, of someone who is not the one you're angry at, but the one who can hold you accountable. Come alongside. Calm you down. And begin to pray for you and help you. Maybe several brothers and sisters, okay, who are walking with you through this so that you don't say things you regret and you don't grieve the Holy Spirit by something you might do when you're angry. Get after it. Guard your heart. What does he say in Proverbs 4, verse 23? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart against anger. Now, Jesus is going to give us two illustrations to tell you, look, it doesn't matter what situation you're in, whether you're with God's people or whether you're in the world, you've got to deal with this. So he says, number two in your outline, the spiritual requirement of dealing with anger against a brother. The spiritual requirement of dealing with anger against a brother. Wanted to get them all letter S's, so there you go, spiritual requirement. And he says in verse 23, look at it. What's the very first word in verse 23? Therefore, and a good Bible student says, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? If you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, you read your Bible carefully, you understand why that therefore is therefore. He's making a connection between this discussion of anger in your heart and this illustration. This illustration is about anger. Anger. And he's basically saying, is it an illustration of conflict from anger between two brothers? That's verses 23 and 24. Verses 25 and 26, which is point number three, give us an illustration of conflict from anger between a believer and a non-believer. So in the church, in the God's family, point number two, verses 23 and 24, outside the church, in the world, point number three, verses 25 and 26. 
So therefore, whether you're at home with the saints or you're at school with the ain'ts, you got to deal with anger. Okay? Anger is an issue. Christ wants to protect the Christian family from anger and He wants you to protect your Christian witness in the world from anger. And even though our worship is different than they had in the temple, as this illustration is of giving in the temple, uh, the principles that Christ is giving here in verses 23 and 24 still remain true for every single one of us. What is it? Verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, this is an act of financial giving that was a part of worship in the temple. You're placing your offering on the altar before the Lord. Now, when you do that, You start examining your own heart before the Lord. You want to make sure your heart is right before the Lord. You're in prayer. And as you give your offering and you're in prayer, you're examining your heart, then either all of a sudden or generally, God brings something to your remembrance. Your conscience is pricked and brings something to mind. Verse 23, what's he say? What's your conscience say? And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Not that you have something against them. They have something against you. Now this is not an unreasonable grudge that they have against you or a disagreement. It's a legitimate grievance. It's a conflict. It's generally a real problem, a genuine hurt, not something that's invented. People walk around wounded all the time from things they've invented in their heads. This is a real offense and it needs attention. In fact, This would be a sin, a violation of God's word. It wouldn't be a preference. It definitely has some form of intentionality to it. But clearly an offense. What does God expect you to do? What's he want you to do? Verse 24. Leave your offering before the altar and go away. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Get this. You cannot worship God with integrity without having a clear conscience and right relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you get that? You cannot worship with integrity unless your conscience is clear and your relationships are up to date. It is foolish and it's hypocritical to continue to worship the Lord when you have a sin issue between you and another Christian. And you know that it's real and it's genuine because you caused it and you got to deal with it. One commentator says this, Jesus recognizes that our relationship with God is primary, but we always appear before God, even in situations like this today, as those related rightly or wrongly to our fellow men. What we are before God involves how we are related to others, end quote. D.A. Carson is even more pointed. Forget the worship service and be reconciled to your brother and only then worship God. Because why? Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. The the exhortation here is ready. Go ask forgiveness. Confess your sin to them. Make things right. Seek to reconcile. The Bible is very direct. Again, this is not an invented idea. This is not an invented insult. It's an actual thing that you did, but God is more concerned about you attempting to reconcile than he is about you worshiping. How do you like that? That's heavy duty. In fact, God wants a cheerful giver and one who gives with a clear conscience. And Jesus already taught us in the Beatitudes that his children will be peace, what? Makers. So we need to be a peacemaker before we worship, otherwise our worship is unacceptable. This is why we at FBC love communion. When we get into the tent, that will happen someday. If the Lord tears, if we're raptured before we get into the tent, praise God. Okay, but... If we're not, and we get into the tent, listen, we're going to have an hour and a half service then, and that service is going to include communion every week, and communion is incredible. You know why? Because not only do we have to make sure and examine our heart before the Lord, we also have to examine our hearts before one another. It's right there in the context that we make sure that we are right with one another. Otherwise, you could be sick. You could even die. It's very important for us to get at the foot of the cross and remember what Christ did for us, and we're getting back to that. That's what the imagery is behind this here. Number three, though, the sober importance of dealing with anger against the unsaved. The sober importance of dealing with anger from against the unsaved. Basically, what he's saying here is the Lord is now giving a second illustration, dealing with anger in your heart, hate in your heart, conflict in your heart, that has to do with those outside the church. 
Notice, verse 21, he talks about a brother. That word is replaced in now verse 25 with an opponent. And that word opponent means accuser. It means adversary. It's someone who's taking you to court because of an offense between you. Verse 25, he says, make friends, how fast? Quickly. With your opponent at law, while you're walking with him to go to the court on the way. While you're going there, make sure you make it right. The situation, very similar. They would understand this in the first century. You find yourself at odds with another person. They're a non-believer. The nature of the disagreement has now involved the courts. It's gotten that severe. This has all the components of a civil case that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. By the way, sub-thought, Christians are to not take things to court if they can help it with one another because we're to resolve that outside the courts as our witness of our oneness and a witness to God's greatness and His power to deal with those kind of issues in our midst. But this is now a non-Christian and a Christian who's then taking you to court and basically he's saying, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are on your way. The situation is don't let the courts get involved. Resolve it before you get to court. This has all the components, again, of what we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. One of the key principles underlying the Lord's words here are found in that passage, Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Say that with me. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You're not in charge of the reconciliation. You're in charge of seeking to make reconciliation. God has to change. So as far as it depends on you, you've made the attempt, but God has to make the reconciliation work. And sometimes it doesn't. But you make the effort. John Piper's really helpful here. He says, quote, We are only responsible for what others hold against us when, ready, it is owing to real sin, a real offense on your part. Secondly, we are responsible to pursue reconciliation, to live with the pain if reconciliation doesn't succeed. In other words, we can't make the reconciliation happen. And then I would add, number three, forgiveness is not an option. Friends, it isn't. As a Christian, you will never forgive anyone more than God has forgiven you. Amen? Ever. Forgiveness isn't an option. So, problem arises They're going to take you to court. So what's he say? Verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way to the court so that your opponent, that guy, may not hand you over to the judge who then, if you're found responsible, will then hand you over to the officer. That officer might throw you into debtor's prison. Verse 26, truly I say, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now this is scary. If possible, take the initiative, prevent the court case from happening. Work quickly, do it right away. Stop hesitating, stop fretting over it, just go. Seek to make the issue right before there's a court battle which expands the conflict. And and this is as fast as you can, lest the court gets involved, because you lose, and if you lose, you end up paying a huge fine, and you might end up going in the first century to debtor's prison to have to pay back the debt now you can't do it it's your family and friends who may have to do that even your parents may have to do that on your behalf and if they can't pay it back guess what they're going to take your house if they that doesn't satisfy the bill then they're going to take your land which is your heritage and now you're doomed and your family is going to be kicked out and they're going to starve this is because you didn't deal with the issue before it went to court that's the imagery that christ is giving us Act out this issue, seek reconciliation, and, and, and basically make sure you don't let it get to court from escalating there and, and settle out of court. Uh, Spurgeon is one of my favorites. I'm going to talk to him when I get to heaven. And he has this great quote. And basically he summarizes this with, quote, a lean settlement is better than a fat lawsuit. Right? And then he adds, make peace with the utmost promptitude. And that's an old word saying, get on it! Hurry up! End quote. The Lord's teaching here should move you to ask actually some pretty important questions. You say, what would those be? 
Are you responsible for any grudge that somebody has against you? Again, you did it. You know you did it. And they're angry with you. They hate you. They're bitter. They're hostile. If the answer is yes, then do something right now. Don't wait. It's gross hypocrisy to say you're good with the Lord and not good with others, especially a believer. This is not against a believer here. This is a non-believer, but even with believers. Even if you're not the angry or offended party, if you know there's a problem, the Lord says seek to resolve it. Seek to resolve it. God, who is the ultimate reconciler, has called you and I to demonstrate a new heart at salvation. And that new heart, are you ready for that? Will forgive and will seek reconciliation. Never allow an issue of anger or hate to come between you and any other person, especially a believer. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us and summarizes this. Listen, this paints a picture that I want you to get. He says in verse 21 through 26, summarizing that, Jesus, quote, is not telling us to hang out our dirty linen in public, but rather to deal urgently and fully with all breakdowns in fellowship before they lead to spiritual what? Assassination. Do you know how this works? You're separate. You don't deal with it. So now, one of the parties has got to justify themselves. So they start throwing insults and accusations against the other party. Well, then to justify themselves, they have to throw accusations and insults against the other party. And the image and the, the separation becomes greater and greater and greater. Destroying fellowship, destroying the oneness of Christ, destroying the unity that we're to display that Christ prayed for in, the, in our midst. It's devastating. Don't let it happen. Deal with it. Listen, God has called those who've experienced the peace of God to be peacemakers as far as it depends on you with others. God has called those who've experienced reconciliation to be reconcilers as far as it depends with us as we're dealing with others. If you hate anger, and you should, then it will require humility. You'll have to get out of your comfort zone and talk to others about difficult issues, but you'll discover that it's worth it. You know why? Because your God and reconciling you to Himself through Christ thought it was worthwhile to reconcile, forgive, and to cleanse, and to wash you of all your sin. Amen? He did. And that's what we live in. We live in the reality that yes, we battle with the sin, but if we're genuinely saved, we are under His forgiveness, under His grace forever. And He motivates us with His grace to say, deal with these issues so that your God is glorified and can be displayed in ways you can't even imagine. So let's take this home, shall we? Here we go, letter A. Don't buy into today's psychobabble. What that means is, don't lie to yourself and think that you can co-live, hide it in your heart, because nobody sees it there, and, and basically not deal with anger inside of you. You, you. you have to deal with it. You cannot co-live with the Holy Spirit and anger. They don't get along. In fact, God's Word commands you to put off anger. Lay it aside. Look at Colossians 3.8 there in your outline. You've got to see this. But now. What's that second word? What's the second word there? But what? Now. Not later. Now. You also put them aside. What is it? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. God commands you to put it aside. These verses image you and picture you as someone who's got filthy rags on. I mean, it's barely even clothes. They're, it's disgusting with, with horrible smelly food all over them and covered in lice. And somehow God in His graciousness took those clothes off of you, put them in the trash can, and covered you with His perfect robe of absolute perfect white righteousness after you cleaning you up. So now you're in this perfect robe of righteousness. And what Paul's saying here, don't put on and go back to the trash can and put those rags back on. That doesn't make any sense. The same thing who somebody who says, I'm just going to just ride this out with my inner anger and I'm going to cover it up. That's the same thing. You're putting the lice-filled, gross garments back on when God took them off. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And Paul's calling you to remove verse 8, Colossians 3, 8. Now, that now, you know what it means? What's it mean? It means at this very moment. Now, rip off 
those garments and keep them off and deal with it. You need to repent of it. That leads us to letter B. Call, God calls you to repent of anger. God calls you to repent of anger. Now, what does that look like? Let me give you some hints as to what real repentance looks like. It, it means you admit that you get angry. You admit it. While you fully embrace that anger is a serious sin before the Lord, not merely expressions of anger, but the internal anger in your heart. That's verses 21 and 22 we studied today. And personal sins are dealt with personally, private sins are dealt with privately, and public sins are dealt with publicly. So if personally you've sinned, go to them and make it right. Or go before the Lord personally and privately. But then if you've sinned against somebody individually, then go make that right. Confess your sin to them. And if it's public, then confess any expressions of public anger. Maybe it's your whole family that you've got to make this right with. But deal with your offenses immediately. Now, the text said, quickly be reconciled. Verses 23 and 24. Don't allow anger, offenses, or conflict to be undealt with and unresolved. That's the warning of verses 25 and 26. Don't do it. In fact, ask God to change your heart and remove the anger from your heart because only He can do that. So while you're repenting of anger, what steps do you take to prevent anger in your life? That's letter C. What steps to prevent anger in your heart and all expressions of anger? How do you prevent it? Well, you don't express anger. Write this down, okay? Are you ready? Never, ever, 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 get all those down, never speak in the flesh. Only speak in the Spirit. It's one of the Faith Bible Church mantras. We don't do that. We'll wait until we can be in the Spirit to talk to one another. Don't speak words you're going to regret, that you're going to grieve, you know, call a time out, whatever it takes. Proverbs again, 29.11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. James 1.19, you're slow to anger. Seek God's forgiveness. Ask Him for wisdom. Listen, something that really helped me, and again, this was an overwhelming sin in my life, and it's still a battle that I have, but victory and, and some progress was made when I began to ask the Lord, why am I angry? I asked Him, what is really the root of this? Sometimes it took a while to figure it out, but in figuring that out, it began to become free of it. It began to see Scripture applied to it and begin to change me and transform me. And I encourage you to the same. Ask God, what is it in your heart that is fostering anger? Why are you so angry? What's going on? Deal with that. Secondly, I would say, memorize all the verses on anger in this outline. You don't even have to look them up, right? Memorize all of them. Make sure they're right there in front of you in your mental capacity because Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I may not what? Sin against thee. Share with mature believers, same sex, about your battle with anger. Let them hold you accountable. Let them come alongside you. Let them exhort you. Tell them we're all in this together. Listen, is there anybody in this room that hasn't battled with anger at some point? So no one's raised their hand. That means we're all in this together. That means we can help each other. Because we know what we're dealing with. Can I hear an amen? Stop being isolated. Tell people about it. Talk to them. Have them pray with you. No, you know, I battle with anger. They're not going to go, oh, no, are you kidding? They're not going to say that. They're going to, okay, let's go after it, Bubba. All right? Focus on, listen, dealing with anger, the negative. Don't put those ugly, slice-filled rags on. But in doing so, you know what Colossians 3 says? It says also clothe yourselves remember that righteous robe he's put on you with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience forgiveness and most importantly verse 14 12 13 and 14 of colossians 3 put on love instead of merely only dealing with the wrong start moving in the direction of giving yourself away of giving of serving of loving others as you do so you're moving away from anger and letter d Consider Christ's purpose for addressing anger. What is his purpose? Listen, it's so simple. Here, they're used to a religion of externals. So the Pharisees are going, I don't sin because I haven't killed anyone. And Jesus is going, man, you are not righteous at all. And if you saw a Pharisee, you'd go, man, that is an impressive guy. That is one godly guy on the outside. You would be impressed. You would be. But internally, Jesus goes, man, they are filled with anger. And it may be that today, 
for some, just a few, that your uncontrolled anger would come and splash you in the face in such a way that you go, I need help. I, I need to be changed. I need to be transformed. And to recognize that my sinful anger fell on Christ on the cross and was punished there. And if I entrust myself to Him, He'll cover me with His righteousness and transform me internally so that I could have actually the indwelling Holy Spirit and a new nature that would want to please Him and want to see progress in dealing with anger. And He can change you. For the rest of us, it would be that, oh, I've already come to Christ, I have Christ, I'm a dwell with the Spirit, I have a new nature, but I still see this popping out, those ugly rags, I throw them back on from time to time. Listen, it's that daily dependence, relying on the Scripture, relying on the Spirit of God to transform you to become the man or woman that God desires of you. Amen to that? The reason, don't, don't give in to the externalism. That's what he's addressing here, is like, I can get away with this and no one will know. Don't do that. Go, you know what? My heart needs to be dealt with before the Lord. Even if nobody knows, my heart needs to be right before Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power of this passage to actually change us and transform us and make us the men and women You want us to be. Father, maybe You might influence someone to become a believer today. But Father, even more than that, we would pray that You would also work in the hearts of Your children so that we would become the men and women You want us to be and deal with those issues that nobody knows about, but we know and agonize over it. And though we know that we will not be completely free until heaven, we pray that we might please You by making progress and seeing some of these things dealt with us. So they're not often assailing us and that we're seeing more of Christ and less of us and we'll give you all the praise for what you'll do. We thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.